0: welcome to oak city church a family of learners lovers and givers sent for more information visit us online at oakcitychurch.com let us know if we can help you in any way thank you for listening good morning uh thanks for tuning in with us at oak city church we're glad that you're here over the past few weeks There have been so many times uh, in conversations with people just looking for things to be thankful about during this time. I've talked about how thankful I am that if this was going to happen, it happened now and not 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, As a church leader, there's so many things that we can do now that we would not have been able to do 10 years ago. Like a live stream service, a church like ours would not have been able to, to do this. On Friday night, we kicked off a prayer vigil with a Zoom call. With the whole church, and uh, that was great. We had all all the people like right there. We met some new Oak City Church babies that have been born in the last month via Zoom, and we wouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, even giving a church depends on the contributions of its folks, and so online giving has made this a lot more feasible than it would have been uh, just ten years ago. That being said. It is Easter morning, and I should not be here in a near empty room, and you should not be on the couch in your pajamas. Like, seriously, have some respect, people. Press pause. Go take a shower for the first time in like four days and get dressed. Now, just stay there. It's okay. When we come back, we're going to have like an Oak City, Oak City Church uh, pajama day just to guys get you acclimated to being here on Sunday mornings again. It's just, it's weird you being there and me not me being here, and it, and it doesn't seem like this is the way that things um, are supposed to be. But God's sovereign over all of it. Nothing says that like Easter morning. Nothing says that when things seem completely out of control, God is completely in control, like this scene at the tomb that we're going to go through uh, this morning. So in this series, The Faces of Easter, we have learned about suffering from Mary, the mother of Jesus. We've learned about faith from Pontius Pilate, from the crowds. We've seen the need for courage. And from the thief, we found out about forgiveness. And this morning, we're going to look at the character of Mary Magdalene. And we're going to learn about love. We're going to learn about what it is to love God and to love each other. And we need that, you know, especially now, maybe we need that because we're spending so much quality time with the people that we love <laughs> the most. Our home group uh, is going through a study on Wednesday nights. It's an online study through Right Now Media that we wouldn't have had access to 10 years ago about relationships. And so this week was about being filled with grace for the people around you. And I mean, we, like, we talked about how much you need that. And when you're around, like, your neighbors or your coworkers, you you need, like, this much grace. And so you show them grace, but you don't need tons of grace. When you're around the people that you love the most, a lot, you need lots of grace. And so you show them lots of grace, but the deficit of grace is still, like, a pretty big deficit. So we could use a lesson on love. As the church, as followers of Jesus, and Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. We could learn a lesson on what does it mean to love God with all my heart. Mary's going to show us some of that. Our church, our tagline, you know, is a family of learners and lovers and givers reaching our neighbors to help them know and follow Jesus. And lovers, honestly, is the one that we focus on the least because it seems a little bit nebulous. And so we could use a lesson on love, and Mary's going to give that to us this morning. Now, this is the scene uh, that I'm going to preach out of. It's uh, in John chapter 20, and so uh, it goes this way. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Now I'm going to skip verses 3 through 10. Uh, Peter and John raced to the tomb. And they look in the tomb and they investigate the thing, and then they go away and they leave Mary there at the tomb. So we pick up in verse 11 Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord away, my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to Jesus, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said, Mary. And she turned and said, in an Aramaic, rabbi, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So Mary's going to teach us a bit about what it means to be devoted to, to love God, and I'm going to. And she's also going to teach us some, some pretty some pretty basic things about what it what it means to be a Christian this morning. And so here's how I'm going to go through this passage: that Mary was delivered, Mary was uh, devoted, and Mary has been ordained. She was delivered, devoted, and ordained. Is how I'm going to work through this. Um, and those are things that, that we need to be as well. So we'll start with this, delivered. Mary was delivered. Who is Mary Magdalene, and why is she the one that is the first to see Jesus? I'll be honest, it's a little bit of a bad pastor moment. When I worked through the characters for these this series, I thought Mary Magdalene at Easter, that'll work. But I didn't know—I'd never really preached on Mary Magdalene or studied Mary Magdalene, so I kind of thought that she was the woman that poured the perfume over Jesus' feet in the Pharisee's house— And that he who is loved, forgiven much, loves much. And I thought, well, that'll work, but that's not, that's not this Mary. And so then I thought, well, Martha had a sister named Mary. And so maybe this Mary and that Mary are the same Mary, but she wasn't that Mary either. It turns out there's just a lot of Marys in the gospel, like, That's it, you know, and and over history, some famous pastors have equated like this Mary with those Marys, but there's no biblical reason uh, to do that. There's just, it's a really common name. You know how every year they come out with a list of the most common Baby names for, you know, in 2019, the most common girls' names were Sophia, Olivia, and Emma. In the year 8, not 2008, but like 8, which is probably around when she was born. I'm, like, I'm not making this up. They say this. Mary was the most common name. And so she's called Mary Magdalene just to differentiate her from the other Marys because she's from a town called Magdala or Migdal, which is up in the same region where Jesus and the other disciples are, grew up. Uh, around the sea of galilee and so that's that's mary what we what we know about her really comes from this passage in luke chapter 8 uh luke writes soon afterward jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of god and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities mary called there she is, Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Just a side note, uh, Herod was a really big deal and not on Team Jesus. And his household manager's wife was like right there with Team Jesus, which seems pretty significant. And Susanna and many others who provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their means. So this is, this is what we know about Mary Magdalene. Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She contributed to the ministry of Jesus, so she apparently had some means. She was at the foot of the cross when Jesus says to John, behold your mother, and to his mom, behold your son. She was, Mary Magdalene was right there um, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was opposite the tomb when they buried Jesus. So when Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus in the tomb, Mary is right there, the scene tells us, and she's at the tomb on Easter morning. That's really what we know about her. So why is Mary the one who discovers the empty tomb and the first to see the risen Jesus and the first to be commissioned to tell others about Jesus? Now, when you read about her, as ordinary as she is, she's kind of a big deal. Every time she's listed with a group of women in the gospel, she's always listed first. Uh, she is in all four gospels. And so even, even agnostic, atheistic scholars of the New Testament will say she was a real person. Bart Ehrman, who's a local but, but internationally known guy who teaches and he's a, he is an agnostic, a skeptic of the, the whole story but says that the resurrection accounts have to go back to a real person referred to as mary magdalene because no one would make it up like this women were unreliable witnesses they couldn't testify in court and so if you're going to make this story up you make it up with somebody else being the first witness likely peter who is the leader of the church being the one that says yep he's risen uh let's go but instead it's it's mary she, um, she leaves the scene and says, I have seen the Lord, which that's an apostolic statement. That's what apostles say. I have seen the Lord. She's the first evangelist. She's really the first Christian, the first to believe in the risen Jesus. And so all this, it probably can't be overstated how significant it is that Mary is the first witness and, and the first evangelist to the gospel. Why would you make Mary the first witness? We know so little about her. She's, she's pretty ordinary. She's just another Mary. Well, the first reason you would make her the first witness is because she actually was the first witness and you weren't making this stuff. They weren't making this stuff up, y'all. Like, this is how it happened. If you were tuning in this morning and um, you're just skeptical about this, you're not quite on board with the whole resurrection thing, I get it because it's a lot. But I strongly urge you to consider... What i'm going to say this morning, but more than that to dig into it for yourself because there's a lot that tells you This is exactly what happened One pastor I was listening to put it this way He said if you got a letter in the mail that said you had a distant relative that died and left you several million dollars What would your first thought be? My first thought is that Nigerian prince scam where they send you an email and they ask for your bank account number so they can deposit 700 whatever it is you know you'd think this has got to be a scam but it's a relative so you know their name and there's a number of a lawyer that you can call and so you're at least going to like look at the envelope and see is that a stamp or is that what they use for the mass mailings on there and is that really handwritten or is it one of those things where there's like you know, sending you spam mail, but they they make it look like it 's handwritten stuff. You check that stuff out because just maybe it 's true, and that 's how you should approach the resurrection. It sounds too good to be true, but there 's a lot to it, and I urge you to to dig into that when they when they do this, they have every incentive to make Peter the first witness, but they don't. They make Mary the first witness. Jesus has told them multiple times in the Gospels, and they record it for us, that he's going to rise again. If you're going to make this up, at least one of you would have believed that Jesus was actually going to do it, but none of them did. Mary shows up at the tomb with spices. She is not expecting to meet a risen Jesus and cook a meal. She's expecting to see a dead Jesus and to anoint his body. Uh, Even when she sees him, she doesn't recognize him. None of this inspires great confidence in the characters, um, and, and it really works to erode their credibility. So why put it in there if it isn't exactly the way that things happened that morning? If, you, if you're making it up, you don't convolute it by talking about how even you didn't think it was going to happen. There is a, a quote attributed to one of Hitler's right-hand guys, Goebbels, that said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. And that's what a lot of people think the disciples did when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. It's, there's just so many reasons to believe that's not what happened here. Uh, do you find it hard to believe? You're not alone, but there's good reason to believe it. Even, even there's a scene that I'm not going to go through when Jesus ascends to heaven. It says they're on the mountain with him. He's about to ascend into heaven. Some worshiped. Uh, or many worship, but some doubted. They're right there with the risen Jesus. He's ascended into heaven, and they're like, this, this can't really be happening. They're just like us, y'all. They're just like us. So you have good reason to believe this. And that's why they're recorded, is because she, she was the one. She was the one. Now, the second reason to say Mary is because she may have been the first witness because she loved Jesus the most. It may be that she loved Jesus the most. Where were the boys that morning? You know, they were scared. Uh, Worried about getting arrested themselves, they were wounded because uh, maybe their pride is hurt that they got everything wrong. They're hopeless, wondering what comes next. Even after Mary goes and tells them that the tomb is empty, another of the gospels recounts that they thought it was an idle tale and they still didn't believe her. Mary may just have been humble enough not to have her ego wrapped up in this, and she loved Jesus, and so she wanted to be near Jesus. Even if Jesus wasn't alive, she wanted to be near Jesus, so she is the one that went to the tomb. Mary had been delivered. She had been delivered. She had seven demons cast out of her. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, that's kind of a whole other sermon. I don't know, you know how, you, how you think about that. I, I believe it. I believe that God is a supernatural force for good, with so much evil in the world, it's not hard for me to believe that there is a supernatural force that is working for evil in some way. I don't know exactly how that works. Um, I've never really interacted with that, but I know like a bunch of people here at Oak City and beyond that have had like firsthand interaction with the demonic realm and have described it to me. And it's like what it's described in the Bible. So her having, some, having demons cast out of her, that's like huge, hugely significant. Uh, For her. Some people have said that 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 would work somewhat like mental health, you know, and how we understand mental health. And I could agree with that in the sense that when you have mental health issues, things feel completely out of control. If you have someone near you that has mental health issues, things seem completely out of control, whether it's depression or addiction or like sociopathic, narcissistic behavior, manic depressive behavior, any of those things— Life seems out of control, and that has to be a bit of what it felt like for her, and she was delivered. And the number seven in the Bible is is a number that means more than just seven. It's a number of completion. It means she had a whopper of a case of demonic whatever, and Jesus delivered her from it. He delivered her from it. He changed her life, she was never going back, she had devoted herself to following and supporting Jesus, and she didn 't know what next, what was next, but she knew she was going to do right by Jesus in that moment, and she just wanted to be close to him, whatever she could do. Mary had been delivered, and so that led to Mary being uh, devoted she was devoted to Jesus. So back to the scene at the tomb, um, it says Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And her weeping is going to be mentioned three or four times here. And weeping is not like a tear coming down. Weeping is like out of control wailing. She is ugly crying at this point. And so she's weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, second mention, she stoops to look into the tomb. She sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This is like another sermon, but like that's an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant. There are two angels and the mercy seat, and this is where God resides. And John does that sometimes in his Gospels. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Third time, she said, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turns around and sees Jesus standing, but doesn't know that it's Jesus. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Fourth time, who are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, which John does this again. That's another illusion. Who's the most famous gardener in the Bible? It's Adam. God puts him in a garden, tells him to work it and keep it. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the better Adam. The book starts in a garden. Here it goes to a garden. It's going to end in a garden city. And John is tying the whole thing together here. And she says to Jesus, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Uh, And even this, like she's ready to to get into it with the gardener. Like, you take the body, give me the body. I want the body. Uh, she's ready to go because she's devoted to Jesus. She wants to know what happened to Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabbi. She recognizes him, uh, which means teacher. And then Jesus says, Don't cling to me. So, so she clings to him. This, is, this might be a little bit of an awkward moment. I'm going to, I read an article this week about the emotional life of Jesus and how his emotions preceded his actions. And I'm going to reference that um, towards the end of the the sermon. But here, apparently, it's it's like he's not much of a hugger, you know? So that's a thing here. The implication, though, is that she recognizes that he's Jesus and she's got him in like this death grip and she's not letting him go. Like, I don't know, maybe Mary was on the sturdy side. And one pastor said that Jesus is like saying, ouch <laughs> like let go but that's how you would be if you saw jesus and he was risen and you thought he was gone but you got him back that's exactly how you would be you would never let him go and that's what mary does uh, and so he says don't cling to me i'm not yet ascended to my father but go to my brothers and say to them I'm ascending to my father and your father to my god and your god and mary went and announced to the disciples i have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Mary loves her, some Jesus. It's emotional for Mary. Is it for us? Do we respond to Jesus with this type of emotion? Do we respond to Jesus with this type of emotion? There's something significant, I think, to the fact that Mary goes to the tomb um, even though she doesn't think Jesus is going to rise again. And she goes while it's still dark. She goes as early as she can possibly go. And she doesn't even know how she's going to get in there. Uh, She doesn't anticipate that the stone has been moved away. She just goes to be near and and maybe they'll figure out a way to get the, the tomb open so they can anoint the body of Jesus. But she if Jesus never did another thing for Mary, that would be enough for Mary. If Jesus never did another thing for her, that would be enough for her. They all could have looked at these events and thought, Jesus let me down. He wasn't who he said he was. He put me in a really bad spot now. What are we supposed to do next? We gave up everything for this. But Mary didn't. Mary didn't. She'd been delivered. If if Jesus never did another thing for her, that would be enough. Is that true of us? Is that how we look at our relationship it's it just what we know about Jesus and what he's done for us. If he never did another thing, would we love him the way that she loved him? Are we devoted to Jesus like this? So often our faith becomes a matter of what Christ can do for us or what we can do for Christ. Instead of just being present with Christ, just the reality that we get to be, we get to be present with Christ. Uh, Jean Marie in the introduction to the prayer vigil yesterday did a great job of that in this time of prayer that we got to spend with the Lord She said man, just be present with him Just be present with the Lord and it's the presence of christ in our lives and our love for him That's supposed to lead to the other things that we do for him or he does for us I read one pastor this week who talked about how we can turn god into an idol and that's kind of strange language But just try and follow along with this for a minute. He's saying we want god simply for what god can do for us He wrote, These days, religion has become another product on the shelf designed to address our sense of incompleteness. This way of presenting God, Jesus, and the Christian faith is so common in our time that many think this is the Bible's gospel. This Jesus has come to fill the gap in our lives and to bring us satisfaction. The church's God product takes its place alongside all the other things, vying for our attention with their promises to fill the gap in our lives and render our existence meaningful. Take one or mix and match. A luxury car, financial success, fame or Jesus, they all pretty much promise the same satisfaction. He continues, what we see taking place in the church today is the reduction of God to an idol to a thing that will satisfy us and fill the gap we feel in our hearts. And thinking of God in this way, the church ends up mimicking every other industry by claiming that they can take away the sense of loss that marks our life. By misunderstanding the nature of faith, they turn the good news of Christianity into the bad news of idol worship. Mary's love for Jesus isn't dependent on what Jesus can do for her, but sometimes we just get to see Jesus as a means to an end. And He does give us things. He provides for us forgiveness and hope and comfort and peace and stability and community. But that's the byproduct of being in relationship with Jesus, of knowing Jesus. It's not the substance. It's not the reason for knowing Jesus. We get Jesus, and because we get Jesus, those things come along. But we don't get Jesus in order to get those things. That's not really loving Jesus. It's loving ourselves and using Jesus. And he calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. Jesus says you have to lose your life to save your life. But he's not kidding about that. You have to be willing to to lay down your life in order for all those other things to come. And you have to go through something to get that. Part of it is just being devoted to Jesus because he's Jesus. Uh, The flip side of looking at it that way of what he can do for us is what we can do for him. And so as someone who is a pastor, and, and this is what God's called me to and what I've given my life to, uh, I read a quote a couple weeks ago that has stuck with me and, and kind of ripped me apart a little bit. So um, it was a musician that wrote this. He said, some of you people are so worried about how you're going to do something great for God. Well, I'll tell you, forget it. Mother Teresa said, there are no great things done for God, only small things done with great love. There are no great things done for God, only small things done with great love. So stop worrying about what you're going to do that God's going to be really knocked out by. Remember, he created the whole world in six days. You're going to have a tough time impressing him. That's just a good word, you know? And so I was convicted by that. Like the things that I do, am I doing it for him or am I doing it for me? Am I doing it to accomplish something or am I doing, you know, small things with great love for God? Are we devoted to Jesus the way that Mary was devoted to Jesus just because he's Jesus? So she was delivered. She was devoted. And Mary has been ordained by Jesus. Now, honestly, I was looking for a different word. I was trying to alliterate. I wanted three points that all started with D. This is not how I normally do things if you're new to Oak City Church. Uh, And so I had to settle for a word with a D in it towards the front. It's just the best that I could do. But she was ordained. She was chosen. She was chosen. She was appointed. She was destined or predestined. She doesn't recognize it's just a a weird thing about the scene she doesn't recognize jesus that morning she turns to him and supposes him to be the gardener and says if you've carried him away tell me where you've laid him and i'll take i'll take him away and then and then jesus says her name he says mary and then she recognizes uh that it's jesus why this happens in other places there's a scene that's going to happen just a few hours after this, where Jesus is going to be walking with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize who he is, and he's giving them this big sermon about the Old Testament. And finally, he breaks bread, and then they recognize that it's Jesus, and he disappears, and they say, we're not our hearts burning within us. The disciples are going to go to Galilee and meet Jesus at the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to be out fishing, and Jesus is going to be on the shore. and It's super early, so they can't see well, but Jesus says, hey, cast the net on the other side, and you're going to have some luck. And they don't recognize him until it's a recreation of this miraculous haul of fish that happened when Peter first acknowledged that Jesus was Lord. Why? Why do people not recognize Jesus? Is it that he that he looks different post resurrection than pre resurrection? Maybe, maybe he did. Uh, is it that, that they were too far away from Jesus on that beach, or that Mary was, like I said earlier, she was ugly crying. When you're ugly crying, you tend not to look directly at people, and you can't see real well when you're doing it. Was that it, or was it something else? And I think it was something else. This is what Jesus says uh, in John chapter 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Salvation isn't something that you do. It's a gift. Faith is a gift to us. And so it, it you know I talked earlier about evidence, but data doesn't do it. Data isn't enough. When it comes to believing the resurrection, you already have all the evidence you need like it's all there. It's not going to change, but all the evidence will never be enough. It's something more, something spiritual that has to happen. You can know all about Jesus but not really know Jesus. And you don't know Jesus until he calls you and you respond to his call. And there are parts of me that don't necessarily even like that, but it's true. Jesus, in that scene where he says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, had just said this, he said to him, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. This is a group of people who the day before he fed the 5,000, they followed him around the lake, and he said, you're only following me because you're hungry. You've seen these signs, but you still don't get it. You want me because what I can do for you. You don't want me because I am Lord. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. God has to reveal himself to you, and you have to respond to that revelation. The, the data isn't enough. Now, I, I mentioned that earlier, the thing about the letter and the relative leaving you a million dollars and your skepticism and it's worth checking out. I'm going to give you one more thing that, that I didn't really realize until this week, and I found, it, I found it pretty fascinating. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul says to that church, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, this little part of 1 Corinthians is what's referred to as a creed. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote that even skeptical scholars agree that Paul actually wrote that one and that it was an early letter. It was dated in the 50s, so some 20 years after Jesus lived and died and rose. And this creed is something that Paul didn't write. It's that something that, like he said, he received. It's like an early hymn of the church. It's a statement that they repeated over and over again that Paul likely got when he went to Jerusalem from the early church fathers. And so even non-Christian scholars will date the creed to within five years of the life of Jesus, which just blew me away of how early that is. And even non-Christian scholars will agree this creed was going around five years after Jesus was walking on the earth. This is not some legend that people made up a hundred years after Jesus walked to the earth and forgot all about them. This is not tell a lie big enough for long enough and people are going to believe it. These were not stupid people. They weren't. They were, they were like you and me. They thought through this stuff, right? Non-Christian scholars will say this. They'll say, I believe the disciples believed that Jesus was resurrected. Non-Christian scholars will say that. I believe that the disciples genuinely believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's the best explanation for the way they behaved and everything that happened with the early church. But the scholar will then say, but I don't believe Jesus was resurrected because that's kind of crazy. And then you can ask them, well, what do you believe? They're like, well, I don't know, but it's not, it can't be a resurrection just because a resurrection can't happen. Right? The evidence is all there, and I geek out on the evidence. I geek out on it because a lot rests on my faith. And so I want evidence to, to place my faith in, but I also geek on it because I feel, I feel responsible to make a good case for the viability of the faith to those of you who don't yet believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior who died on the cross from your sins and rose from the dead because a lot rests on your faith. And so I love the data, but the data will never be enough. He's got to call your name. It's personal. It's personal. It's personal. And that can be a hard thing. You know, I've thought before and talked to people like thinking, is that fair? Well, I don't know. Like, is the cross fair? It wasn't. We probably shouldn't be careful about asking what's fair and not fair, what not, what's not fair. I mean, God is fair, so it's fair. Uh, people ask, well, how do I know if I'm called? I think if you're asking that question, he's probably calling you. Uh, There's certain ways that God works in people's lives to convict them of their need for Jesus And they're all over the board, you know, and it's his word and prayer a lot, but they're just other things too. And if God has been calling to you, respond to him. Don't harden your heart. Don't ignore him if he's speaking to you. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews. It says this, as it said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? And so the author goes back to the Israelites that, that left Egypt and they had all these miraculous things happen and they went through the Red Sea and they're in the desert and they have manna. They had all the data, they had all the evidence, and still they couldn't quite believe. And he says their hearts were hardened. Was it not those with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did we? he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief because of unbelief. He continues, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. If he's calling to you, listen to his call. Mary had been delivered, she was devoted, and she was ordained. Have you been? Have you been i'm going to go back through those but i'm going to go instead of one two three i'm going to go three one two And so i'll start with ordained You've been chosen Uh, he has spoken to you. He knows your name The bible tells us that he knows the words that come out of our mouth before we speak them. He knows Um the steps that we take before we take them. He has the hairs on our head numbered. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground That is Unbelievable like That just means God is so much bigger than we can, we can fathom that he is, but he is. And so he knows you, and you know that. You've been chosen. You've been delivered. This is from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. We celebrate the hope of the resurrection this morning that there is something beyond death and we can have confidence in that because we have a God who has come down and done these miraculous works and lived the perfect life and defeated death and rose from the dead and they never found the body. If you were a skeptic this morning, we all have a sense that there is not a subjective right and wrong, but an objective right and wrong. And we don't know where that comes from. We have the sense that all of this around us, the, the miracle of nature did not just happen through some set of random mutations, but like someone designed it. There was something behind it. We have a sense that there is a supernatural beyond the natural and the evidence of the miraculous. And we have a sense that there is a life that goes beyond death. And the resurrection like puts a stamp on it and says, you have great reason to believe all that. God became personal to us and gave us every reason to believe and have hope beyond death. You have delivered my soul from death. You've delivered my eyes from tears, Even in the worst of situations, we can believe that God is in control because he showed us that over and over again. Uh, and you have delivered my feet from stumbling because God is so much smarter than me and he's given me his word. I don't have to stumble. What has he delivered you from? From sin, he was forgiven much, loves much. From hopelessness, from self-absorption, from a life of futility, what What has he delivered you from? And being ordained and delivered should lead to devotion. And that psalm um, ends, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? For I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the the name of the Lord. Uh, And that's not boring because you're supposed to obedience. That is heartfelt devotion. That's what makes Christianity different. It's not Jesus' teaching that makes the difference. It's that we believe there is a tomb in Jerusalem that's still empty, and a Jesus who is still alive. No other religion shoots for the moon like this. None of them do. And we love him because he first loved us. Our devotion to him comes from his devotion to us. I mentioned, and I'll close with this, the article about the emotional life of Jesus and the emotion that Jesus felt most often was compassion. Uh, And it moved him to action in the Gospels. And he still feels that for us. He had compassion for those of us who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, for the leper, for the outcast, for the sinners, and for the saints. He had anger towards the sin that so easily entangles, and he has moved heaven and earth to rescue us from it. And right now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Rejoice this morning. Rejoice this morning that we have been devoted, uh, that we have been delivered, uh, that we've been ordained and that we can be devoted and i would urge you if if you have never received christ you've never believed in his life and his death and resurrection and, and your need for him and what he's done for you i urge you this morning to lift up the cup of salvation and to call on the name of the lord father thank you for the chance to celebrate this morning even over the internet, Lord. Uh, That millions and billions of people this morning are celebrating a resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago. That the steam hasn't gone out of that because you ordained it and because you are still in control, God. We love you and we thank you. We are grateful for all that you have done for us, Lord. May we love you much because of the love that you have shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.